Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. Here at Enduring Interest, we are in the midst of exploring books and essays that address the great challenge of the 20th century, totalitarianism and ideology. Next up in this series, we'll have Nathan Pinkowski on to discuss Francois Furet's book, The Passing of an Illusion, The Idea of Communism in the 20th Century. To close out our series on totalitarianism, we will have a conversation with four of our previous guests to discuss the theme of art and totalitarianism. Jacob Howland, Perry Link, Jim Pontuso, and Claire Cavanaugh will all be back for this discussion. The conversation will take place first as a webinar, which we'll record and subsequently release as a podcast. More information about this event will be forthcoming very soon. Please remember to message us on Twitter, where our handle is at the EIPod. There you can suggest topics, books, and guests for the podcast. My guest today is Claire Cavanaugh. Claire is Frances Hooper Professor in the Arts and Humanities at Northwestern University. She's a prize-winning translator of contemporary Polish poetry. She's the author of Lyric Poetry and Modern Politics, Russia, Poland, and the West, and is currently at work on an authorized biography of the subject of today's episode, the great Nobel Prize-winning poet Czesław Miłosz. Her translations and essays have appeared in publications including the New York Times Book Review, The New Yorker, The Times Literary Supplement, The New Republic, Book Forum, and Partisan Review. She's won many, many awards and distinguished fellowships. It's a great pleasure to have her here on the podcast. Claire and I will discuss three poems by Czesław Miłosz, You Who Wronged, Child of Europe, and Middle Bergheim. Here we see Miłosz grappling with the problem of totalitarianism from many, many angles. You'll notice he anticipates many lines of thought he'd go on to explore in his classic book, The Captive Mind. Well, welcome, Claire Cavanaugh, to the Enduring Interest podcast. It's a real pleasure to, to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for inviting me. Oh, you bet. Uh, so, so, Czesław Miłosz is a, a poet and thinker close to my heart. He is the, the person who got me interested in totalitarianism. A friend, you know, many years ago said, you, you need to read The Captive Mind and some of his, his poems. And uh, I was just overwhelmed by the, the depth of, of his, uh, his thinking and, and the beauty of his poetry. So I'm really excited to, to get into his, his thought with you by an expert and someone who studied him, been studying him for many, for many, many years. Why don't we just start by talking a little bit about his, his biography? He lived a good long life. And so if you could just try to encapsulate this massively interesting long life into, into a few minutes, I think our listeners would be grateful. Well, even just to give the most uh, shocking and engrossing episodes is kind of enough. I, I just want to say first, though, that I, I knew Miłosz in the last part of his life, and he would have been thrilled to hear you say what you said about nobody ever thinks about how much famous poets love praise, but he would have been thrilled to find out that a professor of political science was... Uh, engrossed in his work the way you have been. So. Oh, great. Yeah, maybe, maybe at the end, we'll, we, I've, I've, I've forgotten that you had uh, been lucky enough to meet him 
a few times. So maybe at the end of the our conversation, you might talk about what those encounters were were like. So we'll I'd be happy leave that to. for the end. Yeah, but but uh, yeah, give us a little bit of his. Okay, biography. the biography. Um, again, I'm giving it. We're we're coming up on what would have been. It's going to be the centenary of his. No, centenary plus ten of his birth in just a few days, actually. He was born in 1911 in a, a village, not even a town, called Shetania in Lithuania, which was at that time, and this is really given the capsule version of very complicated history, the part of Europe he was born into is one of those parts that, as I tell my students, where you can go into exile just by staying at home. He was born into the Russian Empire, Lithuania at that time was part of the Russian Empire. Uh, immediately after uh, World War I, Poland regained its independence after about 125 years of having been divided up between three imperial powers. Um, and he found himself in Poland, uh, that part of Lithuania that he was in at the time, Vilnius, the capital, uh, became part of Poland. So he grew up in Lithuania, technically. And that's something that uh, his compatriots and he never forgot, that he grew up in a province of a former Polish empire in the 18th century that had been passed from one empire to the next um, over the centuries. Uh, that's where he studied. He studied law in Vilnius with episodes in Paris. Um, he kayaked to Paris with some friends. That's just a slight adventure. And isn't in, that uh, retold in uh, Native Realm? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Well, I remember that that uh, episode um, from that book. Yeah, that's wonderful. Ended up in Warsaw, partly for political reasons. He'd been always on the leftist camp in um, the student circles. And the part of the student circles he was engaged with were acutely aware that they were kind of in the pincers between the growing Nazi powers in Germany and Soviet power, which had already tried to take over Poland in the beginning, um, during the course of the revolution, hadn't succeeded, but obviously wanted to get its uh, piece of the pie. So his vision in, in the interwar period was what was called the catastrophist vision in poetry. Catastrophe is looming. How do we handle it? The war came, he, he was in Warsaw at the time, working with Radio Warsaw, uh, collaborated with the underground. Lithuania was under Nazi uh, under Soviet occupation. Then he went into the, the German occupied part of uh, Europe. Warsaw ended up being under Nazi occupation and he spent most of his war time in Warsaw. First, he collaborated with the underground. So he witnessed directly both occupations. But the Soviet, he knew the depredations of the Soviet occupation. He knew exactly what one could expect from an eventual Soviet takeover of Poland, which was in the realm of possibility. Um, but he also witnessed firsthand what the Nazi occupation meant. And these two factors shaped his complicated thinking about resistance, occupation, um, collaboration, and all these other factors that go into shape the poems we'll be looking at, um, and what it means to survive one occupation after another. So what he finally witnessed, this is the chemo, he collaborated with the underground up to a point, uh, and then found himself resisting 
the Polish underground resistance in a certain specific way for its acute nationalism that he thought in some ways replicated the sins of the kind of uh, patriotism, uh, the kind of warped and, and destructive patriotism that had prompted Nazi Germany's war. So he thought there was this, this underground current of acute and intolerant nationalism, Polish Catholic nationalism. He didn't want any part of that. And he didn't want any part of the culture of martyrology that he found growing and growing. So he, he stood on the sidelines in the great Warsaw uprising of 1944 that demolished the city. And that comes up in the child of Europe. And more controversially, he never joined the Communist Party, but he affiliated himself with the Communist Party in the years immediately following the war. And this is when the poems come from. Now, how can this come about? He explains some of this in The Captive Mind, um, which grows out in some ways of the poetry of this period. Um, to those in interwar Poland, it looked like both capitalism and communism had reached their apogees in Soviet Russia, the Soviet Union, and Nazi Germany, because the, the capitalist, ostensibly democratic West had failed both to um, contain Nazi power um, and to mount an effective resistance of countries that were, in fact, their allies, such as Poland. Uh, Poland was the first country to be evaded, and uh, the last European country to um, emerge from the Nazi shadow and was handed over at Yalta for complicated reasons I won't go into, to uh, the Eastern sphere of influence, the Soviet sphere of influence. So to him, that looked utterly corrupt. To him and to many of his contemporaries, that looked utterly corrupt. Why would you align yourself with allies who had failed you so overtly and so self-consciously time and time again? Communism, he had no illusions about what Soviet communism looked like in practice, absolutely none. But this is the part of him that it appealed to was the part that it said, at least it said we need fixing and we need fixing fast and there needs to be some hope for humanity there so that at least it espoused some sort of ideal for the future. This is where we find him in, in these poems. At the same time, he recognizes exactly what it means in practice. So he's never quite on any side. He's completely anti-Nazi, that's clear, but he didn't know how to position himself vis-a-vis -vis extreme Polish nationalism that embraced martyrology that says, let the whole country burn as long as we stand up for our ideals and Soviet communism that was utterly destructive in so many ways, but at least had some idea of a system moving forward to redeem the evils of the past. That's where he ends up in, when these poems are written, which is why in the English, as in the Polish, you get places like Washington DC and New York City written underneath the poems. He joins the diplomatic corps. He's a prime catch. He's an extremely erudite, recognized poet, um, hyperverbal, um, extremely visible, been productive all the way through the war, had a, achieved a reputation before the war, productive through the war, and hits the ground running um, in the diplomatic corps, where a lot of his mission, as he sees it, is literary and cultural. And then he ends up in Paris, 
right? Paris. After, after he, you can brief... tell what a prime catch he was by yeah. his the locations he gets posted to Paris, New York, Washington, D.C., ends up in Paris, 51, right after the last poem here, breaks with the regime, writes the captive mind, and is stranded in Paris because he can't get an American visa because he's been affiliated with People's Poland, with Communist Poland, um, and has almost no way, but is repudiated by the Polish immigrant community because he was affiliated with communist Poland. So, right, and right. by the French intellectual community, he, he later said that this decade in Paris, this decade um, in France was the hardest in his life, which is rather extraordinary. 1960 gets two invitations, one to come teach at the University of Indiana, the other to UC Berkeley. Obviously he chose Berkeley. And as Poles tend to forget, spent the four most productive years of his life actually in California. Uh, he's not able to be published in Poland during this time. His communication with people in Poland is very limited. He mainly operates through this extremely efficient network operated through Paris of uh, dissenting immigrant uh, journalists, politicians, literary figures, artists, and so forth, called Cultura, based in Paris. His writings are primarily printed there. He's known in the West mainly for the captive mind, which he deeply resented, but it made his reputation and it got him the job at Berkeley, and he kept publishing prose. His poetry was not, however, published in English or in Poland until the Nobel Prize, 1980, when it got too embarrassing for Poland to... Uh, keep him out. Uh, he was allowed back in, his work was published again. Um, and when suddenly there was an enormous demand, which he was only too happy to fill for his own poetry and translation. So most of the work you'll see in his collected poems was published in fact, in translation only after the Nobel prize. Taught at Berkeley until he retired in, I'm gonna get this, the date of this wrong, I believe in the early eighties. Um, and became sort of the grand old man of American poetry. He, he had an enormous impact on Anglo-American writing during those years. Um, later in the 90s, established part-time residence in, in Krakow and returned to Krakow full-time. I think about 2001, shortly before his death in 2004, because his health made it impossible uh, for him to fly back and forth anymore between California and Krakow. Died in Krakow and I could go on and on about the endless controversy surrounding his funeral, his stay in Poland, his Polish afterlife and so forth, but that's a, yeah, another that's, story. That's I won't wonderful. go into that. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, You Who Wronged. Um, as you said, these poems that we're going to discuss, we're going to primarily focus on two. One very short poem called You Who Wronged and a second poem a bit longer called Child of Europe, and we'll probably mention a few others that were written around this time. The, the collection that these poems are from was called Daylight, is that right? Yes, and was published uh, in 1953 in France, but the poems were written in a variety of locations. Okay, so why don't, maybe I'll go ahead and read You Who Wronged, and sure. then we'll, we'll dive in and talk about it. Um, so this translation is by Richard Lurie, and it's, it's one of the final poems in this collection called Daylight. And the, the place and, and time is Washington, D.C., 1950. You who wronged a simple man 
bursting into laughter at the crime and kept a pack of fools around you to mix good and evil, to blur the line. Though everyone bowed down before you, saying virtue and wisdom lit your way, striking gold medals in your honor, glad to have survived another day. Do not feel safe, the poet remembers. You can kill one, but another is born. The words are written down, the deed, the date. And you'd have done better with a winter dawn, a rope and a branch bowed beneath your weight. This is uh, this is often read as as um, as you mentioned as a explicitly political poem, and it I guess I suppose in some ways it is. When was the inscription made in Gdansk? Was that right in in 1980 that it was inscribed? I believe it was 1980, right? Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's a poem that was invoked by some of the the anti-communist workers in that period of solidarity. But yeah, let's let's just dive in and and talk about it. Uh, he suggests that the maybe the, the task of poetry is to remember. In what sense do you think he means that? I think he means it in multiple ways. He's describing one task of the poet, the poet remembers, and that that's a, a task that survives, outlasts one generation and is passed on to the next. And I mentioned this uh, before we started talking for the podcast is, this phrase becomes the title of the first real anthology. It was published in the 80s, I believe, of the first real anthology collecting together everything that could be called the poetry of dissidence, the po poetry of resistance. So that that perception of it survives to this day. The words are written down, the deed, the date. The poet writes the truth and the poet provides historical specifics, which I like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The words the deed, the date, and whose words, it, you kind of wonder whose words does he mean? Does he mean writing down the laughter? Does he mean striking the gold medals, whatever the gold medals say? He's very general in the beginning. It's, it's a, you in the singular in Polish. There are no historical specifics in the poem, but you can't help reading them, of course, in, into historical specifics, not least because he gives you uh, the date and the place of the poem being written, Washington, D.C., 1950. And so, of course, the way this is interpreted for the Gdansk workers, it's a monument to the workers who fell in resistance to um, communist power. For the poets who are collected in the anthology, it means people's Poland. And yet, at the same time, he at that point is still a member, however, resistant and doubtful, as the poem shows, to the very task he's been entrusted with by the state by whom he's employed. Right. He's, he's working a cultural it, consulate. Right. How important a distinction is it, do you think, he's, he's not a member of the party? Is that right? Exactly. He's, and, he never and, became a member of the party. There's, there's a split in the poem, I guess, because kept a pack of fools around you does he include himself in that number? I think clearly not. What he's kind of saying is if you employ a poet, you're getting more than you pay for. You're getting more than you ask for. Is it is something that comes up in the captive mind is the divided self, the idea of, of Ketman. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of saying the poet keeps something in reserve that you haven't reckoned with. Could you say a little? A, could you say a word about Ketman, 
chapter three of, of Captive Mind, I think. Yeah, Ketman, the concept at this point, it's interesting because I've, I've taught the work a number of times. It's hard to get back to its core meaning because the meaning Miłosz gave it has become the meaning of Ketman. You'll get a million hits and they're all going to be Miłosz. Miłosz uses the term, which he says is a Muslim concept. That's far too general from what I've been able to gather. But he gets his sources, I think, a 19th century French um, ambassador to Persia. In post-war Poland, everyone who signed on with the communists did it with a double, everyone in Poland signed on with a double understanding. They recruited intellectuals, they needed intellectuals, they needed what I guess in, in political science is called cultural soft power. Right to right. take over and recruiting, recruiting all the, the everyone they could. And every single one of these Polish intellectuals, according to Miłosz, and that was very much contested after the book came out in among Polish intellectuals, um, did it sort of with their fingers crossed behind their back, that they endorsed maybe part of it, but they would pretend and keep their Catholicism to themselves, since obviously it's an atheist state trying to find a way to accommodate a, a predominantly, overwhelmingly post-war uh, Catholic nation, um, keep their intellectual reservations to one side, keep their um, literary their their literary self separate from the part that endorsed the party. So you're writing something at home um, that, that doesn't fit the party line. You're writing for the desk drawer or whatever. And this seems to be kind of a Ketman situation you're setting up here. When you see the Washington DC, to me, that's a mark of intellectual honesty. He could have erased the date. He could have turned this into a poem that exists for all time, but he's saying it came out of a specific time, a poet being in a very specific, strange situation and saying the poet has a task and I'm continuing to perform it even though I'm not performing it with, as the polls would say, clean hands. Right, or per, I guess, um, and not, not yet performing it in a, in a kind of public way and in, in, in the yeah. sense of being able to communicate directly with the audience that he would, he would want and would expect, right? And the poem does come out, but only in France in this, um, what the polls called second circulation. Right. Um, and would it have been, would it have been, um, would some of those, those publications that were um, made in Paris, would those have been smuggled back in, I guess they called this Tommy's Dot, right? Smuggled back yeah, into yeah. To Poland? They would have been. I mean, I've read the, all the letters between Miłosz and the, the, the eminent publisher who, who founded this enterprise. And they were always looking for ways somebody gets out. I'm going to try and get this one back in. Um, we're going to, people would memorize the poems and take them back. So there would have been ways, and that was the goal in a sense of this thing, is to be a place where you could circumspectly pass along these books. Um, they were hot properties too. Um, they continue right. to be. Um, I still have some of those early editions that I show my students, and then also underground editions published in 79, 80, 81 on um, mimeographs. Right. of Miłosz's work. And I, I collected a few other years. I got them in a baggie over there on the bookshelf. I should really get the museum 
quality stuff for them. But in any case, these these books, this would have, and it did penetrate obviously by 1980. Now, how they knew the poem, that's a different question. 1980, they have to start publishing Mimosh again in Poland because it's embarrassing to have a Nobel laureate who's forbidden in the country. Right, right. Um, from which he hails. So the poem did last and in a sense it vindicated itself as it came up through these monuments, but he also finds ways, the collection that comes from daylight, I'd say only about a third of that book has actually been translated and there are multiple reasons for that. But what you have is a very, very abbreviated version. Part of it is because he uses a lot of rhyme and meter that's very, very difficult. And part of it is because it's a book of struggle. It's a book of him trying to find what voice do I use? Who am I speaking to? Who am I who speaks? That shows up in here. Right. Um, and what is my attitude to the situation I found myself in? It's, it's, it's full of a kind of bitter irony and satire. Um, one of the poems is called, that was never translated, is called to Jonathan Swift. Swift is one of the people whose voice, the satirical voice of the, um, outsider trying to assess Ireland, the outsider, you know, he's trying to find some, the right distance, which is what irony is, um, at which to place himself. And what does that say about him that he has to distance himself from the activities he himself is practicing? Right. Oh, that's, so that's great. That's a perfect transition to the other poem, I think, actually. Yeah. Um, so, so this, this is a, a poem called Child of Europe, much longer than You Who Wronged but I think more full of kind of interesting ambiguities, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also I think very explicitly anticipating even in a much stronger way than you who wronged some of the themes um, that you've mentioned related to the captive mind, uh, Ketman uh, and other things. Um, so the poem again is called Child of Europe. And the way I read it, I'll just just give my general sense of it, um, and and then maybe you can you can respond. And I thought we maybe we'd read the first part of it, um, but in general, it's about wisdom that has been gained by someone who's gone through the experience, uh, some particular experiences having to do with with the Second World War and and occupied Poland, and then reflecting on the nature of that wisdom and dispensing it to perhaps a rising generation. It's unclear who the we of the poem is. Is, is Miłosz included in the we? Is Miłosz the child of Europe or is the child of Europe the people to whom Miłosz is speaking, right? All, all of these things are a little um, ambiguous, but, but um, and in, in any case, the way I would sum it up is just to say it's, it's about wisdom earned in a particular context of, of occupied Warsaw and then dispensing that wisdom in such a way that it would enable this um, coming generation to survive in this new um, kind of new historical era. Um, so I don't know if you want to respond to any of that, those general points. Um, um, I, 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 I largely agree. I think he's also casting ironic distance on the kind of wisdom in a way, you oh, know, sure. what he's doing here is in a way the we, you're right, everything is in, in here is ambiguous. And I was checking it all against the Polish to make sure because when he speaks to you, the you is singular. So your legacy of skills, child of lure, is he speaking to himself? Is he passing on the knowledge? 
because legacy of skills, inheritor of Gothic cathedrals, this is part two of Baroque churches, of synagogues filled with the wailings of a wrong people, successor of Descartes, Spinoza, inheritor of the word honor, posthumous child of Leonidas, and Leonidas was the king who sacrificed himself um, at Thermopylae. So he, he's saying everything in here is laden with irony because he, if you survive the people who, who killed themselves for the sake of glory, what does that make you? The people who allowed themselves to die, what does it mean to be the child, the posthumous child of someone who sacrificed himself? A lot of what I see running through here and again, it's exactly the irony that makes it so hard to figure out how much he's actually endorsing and how much he's undermining or satirizing the kind of wisdom that's been gained is survivor's guilt. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's both the nature of the wisdom that he thinks the we of the poem has gained is sort of ironic in the way that it's gained. And it's I think you're also right that it's also... He, he wants you to cast doubt on, he wants you to judge the kind of thing that will enable someone to flourish in this new era, to be, to be a citizen of the great coming, you know, I, th I think he thinks this people who are going to be raised up in the coming era um, do not deserve our, our respect. Uh, but I think he wants to show you um, in a, in a very deep way, um, how, sort of crazy and and strange the coming era is going to be um and how oh excuse me no, no go ahead please no and how profoundly traumatic the experience of this generation was another thing that i hadn't really thought about before but it's written in new york in 1946 and one of the things that shows up in his letters and there all of his diplomatic reports from um, this period have been published. So I've read through all his diplomatic reports. It's just going to flourishing New York where everything is available and the cars are whizzing around and everything looks fabulous. And all these people thinking, what the hell do you know? What the hell do you know? You know, I, he's coming from a place, Warsaw was I, I can't remember, and these percentages are dubious. And he has something like 96% demolished. Um, the demolition started at the beginning of the war and then was finished off by the Nazis with the Soviets looking on. And I've seen footage of this. It takes a lot of work to demolish a city. So the Nazis are going around. They're supposed to be, you know, fighting a war effort with blow torches, making sure that the buildings that are still sanding are reduced to rubble. You know, right. it takes a long time and a lot of manpower and the gender specific um, down there is accurate because it was all, you know, members of the army are going around there demolishing the city. So he's seen this, he's in New York working for a government that says they're going to bring out prosperity and health and human equality in a place where he can see human inequality, you know, most drastically. Where but New York? I mean, now New York looks so rich, you can't even, you know, everything's been turned into a Gucci outlet or something. But, but 
back then, I, I, you know, even from the 70s, you walk from one block to the next, and it's like you've gone from one world to the next. You get on one subway line, everybody's wearing their fur coats. You get on another subway line, there are people who are sheltering with the cold. This is the New York you're seeing here. And that's part of the source, I think, of the anger all the way through this poem. And right. Yeah, it reminds me of the second chapter of Captive Mind, Looking to the West, where exactly, he, yeah, he, he sort of Perfect. says, he yeah. tries he tries to help Westerners understand how they are seen by people who have come from the, this crucible of Central Europe during the Second World War. And you all have been spared the weight of history. You don't know anything yeah. about what it's like to endure a war. I mean, nothing, you know, can compare to what it might have been like for someone to experience Nazi occupied Warsaw. And so it's that kind of disconnect. I think you're right that he's, yeah. that would drive someone to, so to that, be a little contempt, almost contemptuous. Like, yeah. I think contemptuous is fair enough as looking to the West is not exactly a flattering portrait of the West. And it's one of the ways in which captive mind and in a different way, this poem, um, it's something I'm interested in, it's, it became a Cold War handbook. But if you check references to Captive Mind now, the number of different situations in which intellectuals, journalists, and so forth refer to it, any kind of, you know, whether they're critiquing the religious right or the hard left or um, Islam or, um, Trump or whatever that that saying the kind of double thought that people allow themselves, he's really dealing with something much much more specific, which with an all encompassing ideology that promises the future. Right. Um, it's important to keep that in mind because nobody, as far as I can see, is espousing that kind of global worldview that we're going to transform all of human civilization. You know, right? That, yeah. So here, good. but what he he does and so he's always complicating everything is what the the russian um theorist mikhail Bakhtin would call a word with a loophole <laughs> none of the words are the absolute words but here he's in, implicating himself this we that both is and isn't him we sealed gas chamber doors well no he didn't stole bread but people did do things like that um, he writes about Tadeusz Borowski under Beta in, in Captive Mind, who was in the camps and was a Pole, a Christian Pole in the camps at the age of 21. As I remind my students, he was a co brilliant college student who ended up in Auschwitz. This is how we have to think of him. He's a kid, you know, he's a kid who was doing the things he had to do to survive and at the same time despising himself for it. So he's kind of allowing the voices of all these people who had to be implicated in the most horrific crimes, you know, some of the most horrific crimes in modern memory here. We, he never did anything like that. In fact, Miłosz is, um, has been listed among the righteous among nations for his work in, with his brother in saving a Jewish family. But he doesn't talk about that. That doesn't enter into the question here. It's the people we sent others to the more exposed positions, urging them loudly to fight on. Here, it's the leadership of the underground in Poland seems to be what's suggested here. He was not part of that either, but he's saying everyone who survived has a story of how somebody else paid the price. And he even says, correct me if I'm wrong, in Captive Mind, in, in his account of Borowski, which is beta, 
that um, Borowski is is harder on himself than was actually true in reality that, that exactly Milos had right. talked to people who were there with him and he said he wasn't as bad as he makes himself out to be in some of these some of these stories so that's kind of interesting it is and Borowski joined after all of this after experience on all these horrors his parents had been penalized for uh being communists I believe in interwar Poland I, I won't get the whole story straight here. He joined the Communist Party and then ended up committing suicide. So he was somebody who joined the propaganda line, you know, went on board. So he's trying to get all of these people. You're getting privileged treatment. Being a writer meant you got the best, a state-sponsored writer meant you got the best of everything. You're getting the exotic dishes. You get posted to New York. You're getting to eat stuff that was unimaginable to anybody in occupied right. Poland. Right. Admire trees flowering. He writes about the cherry trees. He has another poem that wasn't translated about Washington, D.C. that has the cherry trees in it. So he's kind of, you know, he's saying all of us who did this. And how do you think of yourself? This is it's a it's a very interesting lesson in psychology, even this part of it, I think, works even now. Anytime you survive anything, you think, phew, I wasn't X. I didn't, you know, get my lungs contaminated with COVID in the beginning because I went out and went to a beach and went to a bar and do. I'm the one who played it smart. You're not the one who played it smart. You're the one who was lucky because people who played it smart also. But we all have this kind of device of saying that's somewhere else. That's India. That's Michigan. That's wherever the bad stuff is, I'm not there, so I'm smarter. He's talking about a psychological device we use to justify not having suffered the way other people have suffered. Right. But here, the we is everybody who made it through, saved by our own cunning and knowledge. To me, that is the ultimate word with a loophole. Right, right. You know, well, you were on the left and not on the right. Yeah. You, you know, you were further down picking potatoes and they didn't look in the potato field. You know, it was it, it's all accepted as proven. He's talking about quasi Marxist logic here. Right. Yeah. You maybe have, I'll just I want to read a couple yes, of the, the passages from this first section. So this is the opening section where he talks about the kind of knowledge that this we has gained and how they've gained it. So first couple um stanzas here. We whose lungs fill with the sweetness of day, who in May admire trees flowering, are better than those who perished. We who taste of exotic dishes and enjoy fully the delights of love are better than those who are buried. And just, just skipping down to the stanza, the, the concluding stanza in this opening section, the one that you just alluded to, he says, accept it as proven that we are better than they the gullible, hot-blooded weaklings careless with their lives. So the, again, as you've emphasized, it's the people who survived who are supposed to be in some way superior and their superiority, he's asserting rests on their cunning and knowledge, which you know allowed other people to allow, they, they were sacrificing other people so they could survive by stealing bread and, and shutting gas chamber doors. But as you suggested, it's remarkable because he's sort of saying, he sort of allows you to to see that this is this is almost mere assertion, right? Accepted as proven. That's not something that is said by someone who has a strong argument, right? It's just someone exactly. who's sort of stomping their feet and saying, accepted as proven, you know. So he doesn't, I think it's pretty clear from this opening section that he doesn't believe 
that the superiority has has actually been gained or what's been done in in the context of of these dramatic events have actually proved the people's superiority but nonetheless as you said this is the type of argument that people entered into to I don't know, give themselves the illusion of superiority, right? They have to have some rationale to explain to themselves why and how they've survived. So why not why not the, the sort of bare naked fact of their survival, right? Why, why isn't that evidence of their superiority? And an ideology that says you are either with us or you're against us. And if you're with us, you're on the winning side of history, which is what he talks about a lot in The Captive Mind too, is that communism says history has a super directed path. Right. Nothing happens for an accident. You have survived. You have, it always seems to me that uh, Soviet communism has taken sort of, borrows a lot both from, evolution and from uh, sort of uh, teleological theology. And it's about the chosen. It's about those with superior knowledge, but it's also got that Darwinian element, the strong will survive, you know, or bad Darwin, um, primitive Darwinism. Right. You survived, ergo, you're on the winning side, ergo, you are historically superior, and we're going to hand you accepted as proven the quasi-scientific doctrine that he talks all the way through Captive Mind about as both the method and the faith. You know, right. it's quasi-science and quasi-religion sort of combining together. Yeah. And so he gains, maybe we'll, you know, that's a good good connection to some of the lines in the the later parts of the of the poem, sort of explaining the thinking that will enable one to flourish in this new era just to um, connect, uh, connect something from the poem to, to what you were just suggesting about um, Marxism and Leninist Marxism more particularly, right? He says, this is in the third section, he says, uh, do not mention force or you will be accused of upholding fallen doctrines in secret. He who has power has it by historical logic respectfully bow to that logic. I mean, I think that's a perfect Exactly. of what you were just su suggesting. So you have to you have to think in terms of the framework of this unfolding logic of history. And as long as you do that, you'll be in you'll be in good shape. Let me ask you about, I think, my my favorite uh, section of this poem. This is the, the fourth section. I'll just read a couple a uh, couple lines from it. He says, grow your tree of falsehood from a small grain of truth. Do not follow those who lie in contempt of reality. Let your lie be even more logical than the truth itself, so the weary travelers may find repose in the lie. After the day of the lie, gather in select circles, shaking with laughter when our real deeds are mentioned. Uh, do, you, do you think that is the tree of falsehood and small grain of truth, is that sort of acknowledging what I think what he suggests in the captive mind that, you know, Marxism and, and this idea that uh, History is rooted in some sense in the material, material reality of human beings is, is true enough. And that's yeah. something that should be kept in mind. But once it's turned into this comprehensive system that explains everything, then it turns out to be a giant falsehood. Is, do you think that's a sort of anticipation of that I, message? 
I think that's exactly right. I, I completely agree. He 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 says this in multiple places that the idea that human beings are socially conditioned or products of their environment is indisputable because he's seen what happened. You know, he he has a scene. I I gosh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting which. Is it in the captive mind or is it in native realm where he talks about the building being sliced in half and all the papers, you know, all this, it's, it's like a scene to use a more recent reference to um, for September 11th, where, you know, office papers, everything that everybody's accumulated all flying out the window. And what's really revealed is this flimsy structure. So he says there's reality in that. We, we survive by way of these flimsy perishable structures that we take as permanent, take as intrinsic when they're not. But what I was gonna read that I think about all the time, that fits exactly with what you're saying about the grain of truth is the opening, the um, epigraph to the captive mind, which I love. He quotes an old Jewish Galician proverb, when someone is honestly 55% right, that's very good, and there's no use wrangling. And if someone is 60% right, it's wonderful, it's great luck, and let him thank God. But what's to be said about 75% right? Wise people say this is suspicious. Well, and what about 100% right? Whoever says he's 100% right is a fanatic, a thug, and the worst kind of rascal. <laughs> and partial truths seem to me, Mewish would love, this is a theme in his work, he would love to have a whole truth, but his mind is too clever and too um, um, multifaceted to ever take one thing for the whole truth. So here, I think you're exactly right, but take saying there's one piece of truth in there, and I think he's using intentionally sort of language of the parables in here as well, you know, the, the mustard grain and the seed of truth. Um, and then it turns into this, this pseudo religion, the day of the lie, it's not the day of revealed truth, the day of the lie gathered in select circles, shaking with laughter when our real deeds are mentioned. These are the people who know that the, what they're espousing is a falsehood and laugh at the fools who are stupid enough to go along with it. And you just think about you who wronged a simple man bursting into laughter at the crime. It's taking the same idea and putting it on the flip side, saying the poet will come and get you. Here it's saying the people who are in on the joke, who know that we've taken a partial truth, a, a grain of truth, and turned it into a self-fulfilling system, we're going to get together and laugh over a little cognac, you know, when we have our fancy food or something. But everybody else, tell them absolute truth, write the works that reinforce this, this pseudo truth, um, create the artworks, do the paintings, do whatever it takes um, in the outside world, uh, dispensing flattery called a great talent. Praise the system you'll be rewarded for it. And then you can retreat with your little jokesters in on, on, in on the trick and have a good laugh in private. Right, right. Uh, and then it seems like in, in some of the, the final parts of, of the poem, uh, it's, it's a, it gets, uh, to my mind, it gets increasingly more grim. I think he, in, in section six, which seems to be about love, he seems to suggest that, you know, holding on to, to memories of people and, and the past and sort of genuine 
um, genuine connections to the past, all that has to be let go of if you're going to uh, survive and do well in this in this new in this new environment. Um, you know, he tells people to throw keepsakes away. Don't love cities. Don't love countries. Um, don't don't even gaze into the pools of the past. Um, and then in the in the next in the next section, similar attitude towards the dead. Forget the dead. They're gone. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, and then and then in the final section, um, he says the laughter born of the love of truth is now the laughter of the enemies of the people. So even even laughter and truth is going to be um, kind of dispensed with in this new in this new era. So it's very very dark. And at the same time, he says, gone is the age of satire in what is clearly a complicated satirical poem. There's, there's, right. He's undermining every phrase he gives here. You feel there's another voice saying something that challenges it that's not being spoken. That's, that's this, this gift of irony that he's employing so effectively here. Right. Well, if he can, um, I mean, if he can detect what's going on, I mean, he's sort of proof that the coming experiment can't succeed because he's he's seeing this in advance. Nice, yeah, 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 it's yeah, yeah. And that's where the the phrase that comes that gets repeated almost verbatim about let in section three learn to predict a fire with unerring precision, then burn down the house to fulfill the, uh, the prediction. He he calls that the method, which is one of his elaborate terms in the captive mind for uh, the uh, communist dialectic as practiced in um, Soviet-occupied Eastern Europe. Is Poland is a Catholic country, ergo we can't use any of these things on Poland, er and it's been totally destroyed. But we have no resources to rebuild it. So what do we do? We make quote unquote documentary films. I've watched a lot of them, the gift of um, the World Wide Web, showing happy people in this newly built workers paradise going in and picking you know, the clothes they're gonna wear off the shelves and deciding what food they're gonna buy. And then of course, the people who are actually crammed eight people to a, a room because of the, the hideous marketing uh, housing shortage in a destroyed land get shown this film and that's supposed to be the reality it's painted on the walls of buildings you know there used to be these monumental street murals of the joyous growth of prosperity and freedom in people's poland inside the buildings the plumbing doesn't work you don't have a telephone you know you're still using right. an outdoor toilet for so this, this huge disparity and he's writing about it in this way and at the same time new york 1946 He's undermining what he himself is participating in. And this is something, again, I admire it. He's writing the poems secretly that will come out only, he doesn't know this yet, we know it in hindsight. And um, he's very suspicious, rightly so, of hindsight. He says here, you know, we knew we were going to survive if we did this. We knew, well, no, you didn't. You, the bullet could have hit you just as easily. Right, right. Um, but that's dialectical materialism as practiced in the Eastern Bloc is you pr predicted outcomes. You know what's going to happen. But he's undermining it in his poetry while participating in this machinery in the heart of 
the capitalist world, you know, in New York. You know, right. how far was he from Wall Street while this was going on? So, so ambiguous words that he talks about here in five, he's he's being a master of them. It's not where he wants to go poetically. And I suspect one reason why so many of these poems went untranslated is this is coming from his period of what the hell is my future? Right. Now, you right. know, um, this period of agony that ends up with this decade in Paris. Um, and I'll just mention the, the poem that concludes the volume, and this was translated, an extraordinarily beautiful poem, because this, the, the collection in some ways is about the falsification of history. The dead can't answer back. It's, it's part of that dictum, you know, the, the victorious write the history. Um, if you tell lies about the dead, they're not going to answer you. But it ends up in a very different world. This is Alsace, 1951. This is after he's broken with the regime. And he really, you've read Fenashek's biography. Um, he, I, I don't know how much of it is there in the English one. It's really vivid in the Polish thing. I think it's the strongest part of the book, actually. Is the absolute hell and torment he's in after he's made the break with the regime. Has he done the right thing? Has he done the wrong thing? His family is in the United States when right. he makes and he can't break. get back, right? He can't get back. Yeah, yeah. And there's, um, there's people like Arthur Kessler and Sidney Hook, all the cultural uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom people are trying to get people in the United States to understand who he is. And, right. Know. But at the same time, he has limits to how much he wants to be involved with that. He never wanted to collaborate with Radio Free Europe because he didn't want to be co-opted by the other side of the fight. He's trying to find a position that allows you to see multiple sides and mm. not just, they, they apparently Radio Free Europe, they, there was an ongoing battle with Radio Free Europe. Um, and this was my one brief career as a Cold Warrior as I was an intern in Radio Free Europe in 1982, filing Polish underground documents. It was a very complicated task. I just put them in date order, but that was that was my job there. They were, they were passing on documents and they passed on miniature copies of the captive mind without his permission and sent them, I think the story is in balloons over Poland. Hmm. So these tiny miniaturized copies could be uh, passed along. But here, even that it's called Middle Bergheim, that's the name of the place, but finding middle ground that allows you to see the flaws of the present, the, the sins of the past, and yet embrace the physical reality around you. Um, and here you see him embracing the future as well as the past. Um, wine sleeps in casks of Rhine oak, wine aging, you know, so this is something growing from the past and is redolent with sort of biblical imagery as well. I am wakened by the bell of a chapel in the vineyards of Middle Bergheim, in the middle, Middle Bergheim. I hear a small spring trickling into a well in the yard, a clatter of sabots on the street, wooden shoes, tobacco drying under eaves and plows and wooden wheels and mountain slopes and autumn are with me. Do not rush me. I'm just exhibiting here. You fire power might for it is too early, ripening, you know, it's like the wine, you have to give things time and things evolve in a way in human time, not against human time, which is what Marxist doctrine is. Um, I've lived through many years and in this half dream, I felt I was attaining the moving frontier 
beyond which color and sound come true and the things of the earth are united do not yet force me to open my lips. Let me trust and believe I will attain. Let me linger here in middle bear time. This it was about ripening human time continuity with this, this rural world that's echoes his, his rural past in Lithuania, but that something's ripening into the future and that you give things human time to evolve. Um, so he's, he's really found, at least in this poem, a way out of the history with a capital H that he has such an ambiguous relationship even throughout the captive mind. You know, this was part of the problem with the captive mind. He feels like he has to give you the communist mindset from within the communist mindset. Right. Um, yeah, which is a, a brilliant device because it doesn't let you say that's what they think. This is what we think. We just do it with a wink and a, you know, and a nod and a. Yeah, I love and I love um, this poem, Middle Bergheim, um, because it presents such a counterpoint. I mean, I, I think you've just said this, but such a counterpoint to to the poems that that we've focused on, you know, the poet allowing himself a kind of genuine encounter with the world and sort of letting the world speak to you and not not trying to impose oneself on the world in the way that um you know these ugly ideologies of the of the 20th centuries um did uh one connection i noticed uh in preparing for for our conversation um in the stanza after the one that you've read so this is the third stanza of middle bergheim he, he says, uh, happier than anyone I am to receive, a glance, a smile, a star, silk creased at the knee, serene beholding, I am to walk on hills in the soft glow of day over water, cities, roads, human customs. That reminded me a bit of, of that, um, the opening stance of another poem that we're, we're not going to talk about, but you've written about a lot called Dedication, uh, when, he, when he talks about um, uh, in the opening stanza, he says, in me, there's no wizardry of words. I'm not a wizard-like poet. He says, I, I'll speak to you with the silence like a cloud or a tree. That's he's, He seems to be after kind of a simple language that will, uh, again, allow for a kind of genuine encounter with the world. Um, and that just seems like something that that he's so happy that he's been able to apprehend in Middleburgheim. But otherwise, it's it seems like he's suggesting it's tough for me to it's really tough for me to find this in, in the world as it is yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. And, and after when you know this world can be so readily destroyed and you can't find the path out, as I said, the West seemed to many Polish intellectuals, not just to Milos, utterly discredited by having right. handed over Eastern Europe to Stalin's grip after the war in spite of having declare that Poland was an ally of the West, and Poland did, in fact, fight cooperatively with the West through its underground army for I, the longest-lived underground. But that whole story, I mean, this is where the part of the Polish ongoing, extremely aggravating sense of grievance comes from, is they fought all the way through the war, and yet their exploits got written out, their courage and, and efforts got written out because we were fighting with Uncle Joe at the time. Right. And that wasn't going to be part of the narrative. So French resistance, yes, Polish resistance, no, you know, that the, the, how they got written out of the picture. Right. Um, 
So, but Miwash doesn't want to espouse their martyrological goals either, which is part of what made him so intensely controversial up until his dying day, essentially. Right. Could we, um, we're coming up on our, on um, getting up to, to um, the time where we should start to conclude. What, one thing I wanted to do before I let you go is just to talk about uh, Miwash's kind of view of poetry in general, and this just sort of talk about the relationship uh, of art and, and totalitarianism. He has this phrase that he uses, I think, in The Witness of Poetry. Uh, maybe you can tell me if he uses it in other places, but he calls poetry the passionate pursuit of the real. And uh, I'm going to just read one, one other passage from The Witness of Poetry, where I think he's talking about kind of the po poetic task uh, in general. Um, this is the bottom this is the end of a, of a chapter called Ruins in Poetry. So it's the bottom of 90, page 96 on the Witness of Poetry. He writes, all reality is hierarchical simply because human needs and the dangers threatening people are arranged on a scale. No easy agreement can be reached as to what should occupy first place. It is not always bread. Often it is the word. And death is not always the greatest menace. Often slavery is. Nevertheless, anyone who accepts the existence of such a scale behaves differently from someone who denies it. The poetic act changes with the amount of background reality embraced by the poet's consciousness. In our century, that background is, in my opinion, related to the fragility of those things we call civilization and culture. What surrounds us here and now is not guaranteed. It could just as well not exist. So man constructs poetry out of the remnants found in the ruins. That's a big burden to put on poetry. <laughs> I'm thinking as I read that, um, but it's uh, it's an admirable one. Um, so I just wanted to, to see if you might kind of respond about what you thought Miwosh's general um, sort of general messages to you know aspiring poets. On the one hand, it's clearly that he doesn't want them to be um, political hacks and to ally themselves with ideologies. He also doesn't want them to be um, he, he seems to speak with contempt for the people who who talk of talk in terms of arts for art's sake, you know, artists oh, yeah. talking to other artists. So th there's a lot of things he thinks um, poets and artists get wrong in the 20th century. Um, but it's kind of tough to talk about um, <laughs> what what then is the proper task of the poet. I think you're exactly right. There are tendencies in modern art that he absolutely despised. Beckett's nihilism, <laughs> Mallarmé, art for art's sake, language as mere word games, all of that was, he didn't like Wallace Stevens, his, his tastes were extremely pronounced. Hmm. He liked William Carlos Williams, but not Wallace Stevens. So you can go through and even track what side of the line he comes down on, but the, the bottom, what he says here, I hadn't thought about this passage in a while, but of how many different parts of reality you can encompass. He's not saying you have to write long epic poems because in his own beautiful Book of Luminous Things, uh, an anthology of poetry that's rooted as he sees it in the real, there are lots and lots of haikus, tiny little poems saying this fragment is worth preserving. This little tiny bit here, in a way he, he tries to create both large encompassing poems. He writes these long poems like in his, his very last volume, um, the treatise on theology, um, large poems that encompass all different kinds of discourse, uh, prose chunks, historical documents, 
bits of other people's poems, fragments of songs he remembers from childhood, sort of botanical knowledge, all of those things. But at the same time, a poem celebrating, he has two poems called Table, hmm. where he just thinks about a table that survived and who made it and what are the human traces. There's nothing for Miwash in the universe that doesn't, that, that we can see as human beings, and he's, he is anthropocentric, um, but he sees sort of the thumbprint on everything, that human-made world, and what does it mean to be a human looking at a bird? Magpiety is the, the famous poem there. And what does that mean about the world when you look at one example of one species of an entire kind of, you know, this whole vast assemblage that we call birds, and to be a human being at this moment looking and what a theology kind of underpins it. But again, even with theology, this is one yet another reason why he was so controversial to the end and beyond is because he refused to embrace any kind of doctrinaire form of Catholicism, which is kind of a mandatory, alas, now more than ever, component of Polish identity. A good Pole is a Catholic, a good Catholic is a Pole. And I'm speaking as a California Catholic who does not remotely fit the standards of a Polish Catholic. You know, I, <laughs> and American Catholicism is a, which Miłosz knew perfectly well. But I think one way, and it's not adequate, but that he puts a small C back in Catholicism is that he wants a genuinely Catholic vision, small C Catholic, that allows for the possibility of divergence in the way in the quote that he gives in the beginning of the captive mind mm -hmm. that it's assembling as many partial truths as we can but never renouncing the idea of truth mm. you know, he's still rooted in the philosophical concept of realism as what is the real um right that's very good so maybe we can end um can you give us uh some some of our listeners maybe who um, don't, you know, don't know Miwosh or maybe have heard of him, but haven't read him. What would your um, kind of be recommendations for kind of favorite places to start, I guess, both in terms of um, uh, poems or, or prose, I guess, leaving aside captive mind, because I think that's, um, that's, that's a very quite, quite obvious, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, just kind of favorite, favorite um, poetry or prose where, where you think people might might begin to get a sense of, of well, the gr greatness of the man one i mean there's a, a wonderful i have it here but i'll i'll read the title since i can't show the book is there's a wonderful collection of his prose called to begin where i am that's very well introduced by uh bogdana carpenter and madeline j levine Bogdana Carpenter was his student at Berkeley, actually, and went on to become a distinguished Slavist in her own right. Madeline Levine, also very distinguished and his, the translator of his prose primarily. Um, so that's a great place for essays. And, and one thing I would really suggest is flip around because it's delightful. I don't remember everything that's in here to see the non-serious stuff he does. His ABCs, are the, I, I sent a book of his ABCs to a friend of mine I wanted to introduce to Mulish. There's one little piece in there that's about Winnie the Pooh, um, right. which is just enchanting. Um, so he has a really wide range of thought. He has a great sense of humor. Um, he can also be scary. That, that was true in life as well as in the poetry. 
Um, for the poems, I never want to send people to giant volumes of collected poems just because they seem so intimidating, like you have to read from right. beginning yeah, to end. Yeah, where do you start, right? There's a little, there's a selected poems that is much more flip throughable. Okay. And another place that I think, in terms of just for pure pleasure reading, his book of illuminated things, it's it was a bestseller in the States. It's a very idiosyncratic, deeply personal anthology of poetry he just loves. And I think he includes some of his own poems in there, but it, it, he prefaces everything, talks about if he knew the poet, where he picked this poem up from, or it's, it's a way of seeing the world poetically through his eyes. And it's also, it's a great flip throughable book. And I really believe that if you're not a poetry reader by nature, or you're afraid of poetry because you think it begins with a capital P, the way to do it is find something you can flip through, read out of order, ignore the introduction, and just start picking out pieces that you like. And Book of Illuminated Things is a lovely collection. Great. Okay. And take the selected poems. You do not take the um, 750 page. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then I'll, I'll recommend to our listeners um, your book called Lyric Poetry in Modern Politics. It's got a wonderful essay uh, in it that deals with, with, um, with Miłosz called The Unacknowledged Legis Legislator's Dream, Czesław Miłosz and Anglo-American Poetry, which is really wonderful uh, engagement that shows you how um, Miłosz was influenced by Americans, but then also how in a, in a, in a funny way, he turned out to be very influential uh, on, on Americans and other English uh, speaking poets. So I'll recommend that. Any, any other um, kind of, I guess, secondary literature you'd call it or scholarly treatments of, of Miłosz that you particularly like? There's, um, well, the scholarly treatment, the, the, the sort of classic in English is Alexander Fute's um, The Eternal Moment, which came out from Berkeley. He's somebody, I know him very well. He's an absolutely lovely human being who wanted to work on Miłosz before you were even allowed to work on Miłosz and had to get special permission to get these things from closed, gated, locked archives. Oh. And just, he, I think if I'm remembering correctly, he was sitting there writing down all the poems so that he tried to copy everything he could because he wouldn't have been able to get a hold of it once right. he, he his permission was up. It's called The Eternal Moment. Yeah, it came out of Berkeley. Um, there's another uh, book. And again, I'm not good on the titles. Um, gosh, I know all these people. Uh, my memory is just a student of mine calls it pandemnesia. It's just gone. <laughs> yeah, the pandemic uh, Lukasz really... Tischner, it came out of Northwestern Press, had a, a Mewish and the Problem of Evil. Hmm. Okay. Um, also a, a wonderful scholar of, of Miłosz's work. And there are conversations with Miłosz that have been translated into English. You know, those are, it's a very accessible way to start right. and get introduced to uh, who he was, um, memoirs of Miłosz and so forth. But I really, my big, the introduction to begin with where I am, I think mm. is the best brief introduction for American readers. Great. Um, and it's a flip through book. So yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and maybe we can end. Um, so, so you uh, were um, tasked with writing a biography of Miwosh and then got to meet him. And, uh, and I, I guess I must have read this in, in one of your pieces on him, sort of announced to him that you were, you were doing this and his, his reaction was, was mixed, I guess. <laughs> it's it's a little it was a little bit more complicated than that actually because I I met him a few times he I was terrified of meeting him because he was Czesław Miłosz and but I'd already been translating Polish poetry and I worked with a very prominent poet um, Stanisław Baranczak so I had kind of street cred but I was too afraid to call him in Krakow and I had friends who kept saying give him a call give him a call so I called him he invited me over and he wanted to do an interview with me because he wanted Poles to understand how extraordinarily influential this was in around 2000 Polish poetry had been in the west and since I'm conspicuously non-Slavic enthusiasts for Poland. You know, I was like a good person to do it. So we did an interview that came out in Poland. And oh, so that's great. He interviewed you. Yeah, he interviewed <laughs> me, man, that was weird. Uh, but when I first went to see him, we just talked literature stuff. And at the with his his second wife there, who I liked very, very much, and we talked about his poems and translating his poems. And he kind of checked out my creds. And we just talked about all different uh, literary topics. And at the end of the talk, he said, good shop talk. So I kind of passed the bar. And later, after we'd had these meetings, I, I, I went home, and I thought, God, I need to write something about this guy. What can I do? And I can't like, do a biography, but I'm going to have to get his permission. So he gave me permission. It, and, and then I did interviews with him. But after his second wife died, the interviews went from being incredibly amicable and enthusiastic to he it was he was just going through hell and he put me through hell too so yeah there was like a period where I felt like I was getting put through the ringer mm. um what I've compared it to is Rumpelstiltskin. skin he was looking for and I finally at the end figured out what he, he kept saying I'd consult with Fute, this big specialist I consult with all, all sorts of specialists come up with my list of questions and he would say in Polish what obvious questions Jeez, you know, and then I'd rush out <laughs> consult with my friends come up with another list of questions it turned out what he really wanted to talk about and it's what I'd actually wanted to talk about but felt like you know this is me is religion his last volume is so much about religious quest right that second space yeah, yeah, yeah. second space and yeah and of course, and now I know, of course, what a poet wants to talk about is what they've written the most recently. And he didn't want to talk about 30, the 30s. He didn't want to talk about this. He didn't want. And that's what I, I but at least I figured it out by the end. Yeah. And then what, what's, he, what's he like as a person just to, to interact with and chat with? Well, at first we got along like a house on fire and we just adored each other. And I was there when he found out his wife was ill. And we sort of, he said, we are friends, we are friends, because I, I kind of, you know, I, I was the person who happened to be there when he got this horrible news. Mm. And um, he just, you know, so he just completely, you know, we just adored each other. But then he turned on me and I almost felt like giving up the biography. And another mutual friend, I called her up and said, 
forget it. I just can't do this. You know, he's torturing me every day. And then he says, come back again the next day. Says, this, is, this is just awful. And she said, no, before you got along too well, you needed to meet the old bear. <laughs> because he'd always, you know, this mixture of enormous charm and the most intimidating person. It was like going through doctoral exam after doctoral exam and saying, Phil, come back and we take it tomorrow, you know. Right. So, so I, I, he was an extraordinarily complicated person. Um, but I kept seeing him even after when he was really ill. He, he, I went to see, he asked me to come see him in the hospital. Um, and he made a point of, of meeting with me when he was lying sick at home, dying as he knew, so he could say goodbye. So I feel really really privileged yeah i mean that's that just must be wonderful to get to to spend time with someone that you have studied and, and translated and that you respect and yeah that must have been a, an extraordinary moment extraordinary so, and scary as hell yeah, <laughs> both, yeah. both well claire this has been really wonderful so thank you so much um for your time and i think I think our listeners will will have learned a lot uh, about about Miwosh and his poetry and his and his prose through the podcast. So, um, and and maybe we can, you know, find another another topic, different poems or or um, you know, different books down the road if if we ever do some more episodes on it. I'd be I'd be thrilled. But as I said, my regret right now is Miwosh would have loved hearing about you. He really you would say a, a political scientist is loves your poetry, knows your prose. He would that's the kind of thing that absolutely thrilled him that he kept finding audiences to him. He never got over kind of the delight. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I think I think hopefully will the uh, the the podcast will inspire more a, a broader a broader audience. So knock on wood, uh, and yeah. I'll try and send a message to him in the afterlife. Great, thanks, Claire. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest. <laughs>